This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Beyond Good and Evil, recorded January 19, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the topic this morning is the problem of good and evil. How can we conceive of God, or Brahman, or Tao, or just the world, life, as being good when we're faced with evil? Enormous, immense forms of suffering. You say, look at the world, how can God be good? That's a, a good question. And when we analyze suffering in our practice, we tend to think of it from a personal point of view. We take the position that selfishness causes suffering, and then we try to see our own selfishness, and we try to see in our own experience how that actually causes our suffering. Not just in an intellectual sense, but you watch yourself. You watch how your little desires are disappointed, your expectations aren't uh, satisfied, and this is all causing suffering. You get to see in your own concrete experience that this is actually true. And you also get to see the opposite. Being selfless, practicing compassion, charity, giving, creates joy, happiness. And so, just through your own experience, you begin to understand this is true. But if we uh, extend this beyond our little sphere of operation, so to speak, we start looking at suffering that we have no, seemingly no control over suffering from war, crime, abuse. Every day in the paper we read about uh, extreme forms of suffering, some very personal. We read about children who are horribly abused. Or we read about events in the world where whole peoples are uprooted, driven out of their communities, gassed, slaughtered. Even there, we can say to ourselves, well, if humanity would reform, we could eliminate this form of suffering. If we all became saints, we wouldn't gas and kill and abuse each other. It's a false hope, by the way, that that's going to happen, at least in, in any near future. And I think it's an obstacle, really, to spiritual practice. It's really misreading all of mysticism and even exoteric religiosity. It's never the hope that human beings, as human beings, are going to create a paradise on earth. In the West, when we lost Christianity, and we lost the idea of paradise of heaven, this was all there was left to hope for. And so we came up with this idea of progress, and humanity was progressing towards some paradise on earth, some material paradise. Everybody would have enough to eat and all they needed, and so they stopped murdering and killing each other, and everybody would lead a nice life. It's the paradise myth of our materialist culture. Of course, if we look at history, it's very hard to believe in that myth, especially the history of this century, with Auschwitz and Hiroshima and whatnot. It would be very healthy to give that myth up. But still, there is this sense that we can 
peg the responsibility onto human beings for these sorts of sufferings, even as immense they are. But then we have to face something more impersonal beyond that. We find suffering that is caused by what we would say locally as natural disasters. Children get leukemia. People are killed in earthquakes, shipwrecked at sea. And this, we have to say, God must be responsible for, or however you want to conceive it. That force in the universe that created the whole universe must be responsible. This is how the universe is set up. So how can we say that that force, that God, that Brahman, that Tao, is in some absolute sense ultimately good? In all mystical traditions, mystics tell us that actually there is no good and evil. That they are somehow part of our delusion. They are opposites, a duality, and that ultimate reality transcends all duality, all opposites. Not by a, by just a cold indifference, but something that itself is good with a capital G, that itself transcends the relativity of good and evil. That is beautiful with a capital B, that transcends the relativity of beauty and ugliness. That is love with a capital L, that transcends the relative forms of love and hate that we know. How can we say that? And again, this becomes an enormous problem for people who yearn to believe in something, who have an intuition of God or are brought up in a sacred culture, and they get out in the world and they see all this awful stuff, and they essentially curse God. This is the story of Job, actually, and the story of Job is uh, sort of the archetype of this process. For those of you who don't know the story, and for those of you who do but perhaps have forgotten elements of it, uh, Job was a righteous man. And God strikes him with misfortunes, all sorts of misfortunes, starting with physical bodily misfortunes, boils and disease and whatnot, and then takes away his children and his, all his goods and possessions, I've forgotten exactly how it went, by disease or, or something, and leaves him essentially poverty-stricken and miserable and alone. And Job says, why? Why did he do this to me? I'm a good person. I led a good life. I don't understand. This is what we don't understand. How could an innocent child that never hurt anybody suffer from some dreadful disease like leukemia. Why? And Job's friends come around and they say, you must have done some secret sin to deserve this. This is the theological position, you see. It's trying to understand this rationally. So search your heart and, and pray to God for forgiveness. 
And Job says, no, I haven't. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to cop a plea, do a little plea bargaining here to get off. I'm innocent. And other of Job's friends come and say, uh, I think it's his wife actually, comes and says, just curse God and die. Meaning that God is evil, the world is evil. That's the temptation that most of us succumb to in this culture if we are really faced with this problem. In other words, we become cynical and hard-boiled and uh, whatnot. But Job doesn't uh, succumb to this temptation either. He refuses that. So after all this bantering back and forth with his friends trying to figure out what's going on here, and he still doesn't have an answer that he can live with and accept, he goes to the only place he can get an answer. He goes to God. He confronts God. He says, why did you do this? He doesn't deny God. He doesn't curse God. He goes to God with a question. Why did you do this? And the answer he gets is not the theological answer. It's not a rational answer. It's not that he had some secret sin. Or that suffering is necessary in the world so that we all can grow and, and whatnot. All of these answers have been offered by various traditions. God says, you don't understand the world. Where were you when this world was created? And then he shows Job the world. It's a, in many ways a terrible vision. The leviathans and monsters of the deep and all sorts of things. It's almost like the vision that uh, Krishna shows Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is faced with a similar problem. He has to fight this battle, and these are all his relatives on the other side, and he suddenly is confronted with the horror of war and the evil of war. And the whole struggle of the Bhagavad Gita is how to understand this. And when Krishna reveals himself, when the divine reveals itself, it's not in the form of nice little angels with silky wings playing harps. It's in the form of this huge monster devouring armies and chomping them up in its teeth. It's a very graphic descriptions. And both Job and Arjuna, at that point, fall down and worship God. They've been shown a mystery in which they are reconciled. A mystery that transcends their own ways of thinking about these things, their own dualistic ways of thinking good and evil. Now, in the story of Job, Job falls down and worships God, and then God gives Job back everything, a thousandfold or whatever it is. You can read this mystically. You can read that Job had a full Gnostic illumination here, 
And so he got everything back a thousandfold, not necessarily all his possessions and family, but he got what was worth getting, which is infinitely more worthwhile than uh, possessions and even family. In the Bhagavad Gita, it's even more specific. This is a turning point in the path for Arjuna. It's not the end of the path. You might say it's an insight of ultimate humility. It's giving up the idea that your rational mind will ever understand this. It won't. And once you let that go, that desire to understand with the rational mind, then you've overcome an enormous obstacle on the spiritual path. Then you might say in Christian or Sufi terms and Western terms, you've entered a relationship with God. Not a relationship that's dependent on what you want or don't want God to be or the world to be. And you follow now a path without demanding that things be the way you want them to be. This we would call perhaps unconditional love of God or of Krishna. Or if we don't want to put it in quite so anthropomorphic terms, it's unconditional acceptance of the way things are. It's being able to look at and experience reality as it is without any of our little uh, illusions about what it should be or could be and so forth. It's called facing reality. Without rosy glasses. This is what we have to deal with. We never are going to get to the bottom of truth. As long as our own desires or our own fears are coloring our perception of reality with how we'd like things to be. Then we're not looking at reality as it is. We're looking at reality as we'd like it to be, and then we're looking at experience in relation to that, and we're seeing how much it disappoints us. We're seeing it in relation to something else, and the something else is our own little illusion or delusion. It's not a question of trying to escape the fact that there is suffering in the world. Or somehow avoiding the fact through some logical trick. Or explaining it away through some sort of scheme about, you know, this world is a school and we're all souls here and we all have things to learn and so this evil is thrown at us as obstacles. There's a certain truth to that because you can look at any time you are confronted with evil from a personal point of view as a lesson, something to be learned here. But in the great cosmic scheme of things, we often use that analogy, that metaphor, 
to explain away. What happens when we do that is then we're, when we're really confronted with something that really strikes home when your own child dies of leukemia, all your faith goes out the window. You want to curse God and die. If on a spiritual path over, you're willing to face reality directly, stare at it, say, okay, this is the way things are. And you get used to that. And you employ that great virtue, courage, which is absolutely necessary in a spiritual path. Then you're in a position to really know what this is. So I'd say the way to deal with it is don't try to understand it with the intellectual mind. Don't try to make excuses. Don't try to let God off the hook with your own theorizing. But don't give up hope that there is a way to understand. It's not an intellectual way to understand. Don't forget the message of the mystics. Don't forget what Julian of Norwich said. God showed her there was no sin. He showed her all of creation and all the realms and dimensions of creation. And nowhere did she see any sin. Ask yourself, what does that mean? How could I see creation that way? Julian of Norwich didn't explain it all the way. She was shown this by God, as she puts it. It wasn't a result of some speculation. Much closer to what we call a, an experience, an insight. A direct and immediate insight. So now there's no room for doubt. If you know something directly and immediately, you can't doubt it. In the meantime, you go through on a spiritual path, experiencing doubt, experiencing frustration, wondering how could this be. That's why you're on a spiritual path, is to find that out. Don't try to find it out before you find it out. Be like Job, who refused to cop to some theological explanation for his suffering and also refused to curse God, deny God, become cynical, and go to the only person, quote unquote, who can answer that question. And I'll tell you one other secret. That person, quote unquote, is not out there someplace, even though in the story of Job is expressed this way. That person is in here. And this is why a spiritual path is about getting to know who you are. If you know who you are, you know who God is, or what God is.
is. And if you know what God is, you know what the world is. And if you know what the world is, you know what suffering and pain and happiness and joy are. You know for yourself. You don't have to have any uh, priest or theologian explain it to you. They can't. But you have to face reality. You have to be willing to experience it as it arises, fully and completely. As though you were on a journey across an ocean and you were steering by the North Star and you fixed your course by that star and you made a vow to get to the end of the journey, wherever that North Star would take you. You don't even know where it's going to take you. And then along the way, all sorts of things happen. You run into storms, you run into doldrums, you run into sea monsters, you run into gorgeous Tahitian islands. And you're always tempted to turn back or to stay here. It's nice and warm, this sunny Tahitian island. Why? Maybe this is the place to stay. Or you're terrified by sea monsters or whatever, so you want to turn back. The only way, though, to get to where that North Star is leading you is to keep sailing on, regardless of what comes up. You can't avoid it. You just keep sailing on. This is the true meaning of faith. It's not static. It leads you. And through that journey, you finally come to confront God, as Job did. Then you ask God. Then you come back and tell us. Any questions or comments? Yeah, I, I feel like I would like to have some kind of closure on operational ways of dealing with it in terms of uh, faced with, oh, look, let's say that we're involved in uh, something and discover or, or come upon uh, a gross murderer or something like the Badama case, for example, and maybe we're on the jury. Well, then what I'm understanding is we, we realize it's all delusion anyway, and that we play our part in this delusionary world and just go according to the whatever evidence is presented in finding this man guilty or not guilty. And then if we're the judge, we decide whether to have him executed or not, just based on the rules. Always understanding this is just delusion, and that we're not... But you don't understand yet that it's delusion. You will understand it's delusion. Mm -hmm. You don't intellectually say to yourself, well, all this is just delusion. That's a way of hiding from it. You see what I mean? That's a way of hiding from your own pain and your own confusion in that situation. What should you do? You're serving on the jury. You know that the death penalty, that this guy's going to get the death penalty if you convict him. You also think he's guilty. Now, if you say to yourself, oh, well, it's just all delusion, and sort of play by the rules in that sense, you're pushing reality away. You're pushing your own experience away. You're using that 
intellectual theological trick. Mm-hmm. You're not using it as an opportunity to see for yourself that it is delusion, if indeed it is. This is what mystics say, but you have to test it and find out. So what I'm suggesting is no. It's certainly true. Part of, uh, of all this, as human beings, are social rules. There they are, just or unjust, in your estimation. So here you find yourself, a citizen in this country, serving on a jury. That's part of the reality. That, I mean, the reality in, in the sense of what's experienced, what's, what's here and now. Then you perhaps also have very strong feelings against the death penalty. Now, perhaps you also have very strong feelings that somebody like this shouldn't be let out in the street and you're convinced they're going to kill other people. This is, this is a Zen Cohen, isn't it? Do you see what I mean? This is what I mean about taking it as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. It's great to go off and find a Zen master who'll give you a Zen Cohen and ask you some question like, what's the sound of one hand clapping, which will boggle your mind, and then go meditate on it. But you don't have to go to uh, find a Zen master to find koans. There's a koan. In Zen they say, if the sweat does not run down your back, you can't be enlightened. Meaning the intensity of grappling with this. Do you see what I mean? So that if I find myself going through torment in, in situations, in bad situations, that's great. That's how it should be. Because one of the practices I've been trying to do is to distance myself by all the thoughts that this is all delusion anyway. It's going through the torment, mm-hmm. certainly. I mean, the great accent of Christianity is this embrace of suffering. Instead of running from suffering, you embrace it. But it's not being deluded about the suffering in, in any sense. Do you see what I mean? Uh, it's going through it, but it's going through it mindfully. And that's the whole difference. Going through it mindfully means you not making up your mind as you're going through it as to what's what. You might say you're keeping an open mind. If you go through a, a situation like that as a cynic, let's say, then you've made up your mind what this suffering's about. It's all senseless because the world is senseless and it has no meaning and purpose. Or if you go through it naively, you say, well, I'm going through all the suffering, but um, uh, you know, I'm learning spiritual lessons from it, so it's okay. Having an open mind is to say, here I am, I'm, I'm playing my roles, jury and so forth, I'm, I'm doing all that now. Let me watch this, let me be mindful, let me see here and now. And it's going through this with a question. And you like Job. Okay, God, here it is. What's what? Always with a question instead of an answer. But you, it's, you know, this is why I say, yes, you want to embrace it in the sense that you want to experience it fully. You don't want to push it away. Our trouble is we keep trying to push part of the world away. From a mystic's point of view, it's kind of funny. We're like people, you know, trying to get away from their shadow. 
A mystic goes out there and looks, and you saw everybody in the street on a sunny day, like today, a rare sunny day. People are jumping. And you realize, oh, gee, they keep jumping away from their shadow. Well, it never works. They're jumping and hopping all over the street like Mexican jumping beans. This is our deluded way of responding to suffering. Mindfulness makes the difference here, not having an explanation. Mindfulness is what makes you a spiritual seeker in this situation, not that you have a spiritual explanation for the situation. Is that Yeah, I'm, I'm getting out trying to figure, and, and so the idea is to, to sort of recognize that you're suffering and enjoy it, is the, the, the idea. Well, <laughs> I would say this. I would, not, I would not use the word enjoy it, uh, but I would say to be interested in it. To be curious about it. My life turned around when I got on a spiritual path, primarily because, not because anything changed externally particularly, but because suddenly I was curious about all sorts of situations that before I either wanted to avoid or indulge in. Even the most mundane situations, or what I would normally think would be very boring. Even boredom itself I got curious about. It was an all-encompassing curiosity. So I might be going through agony. But, but this is, Job is curious, you see. So there's a part of my mind saying, what is this? I feel it. Really, what is this now? So enjoyment is uh, too <laughs> Yes, it's like trying to do some alchemy. I mean, there there is there certainly there can be such a thing. Julian of Norwich, by the way, I didn't mention this. The vision that she had was in the midst of tremendous physical agony. She had some sort of disease, and she, they thought she was on her deathbed. It wasn't like she'd gone off and was sitting on a mountaintop, you know, where everything was sunny and the birds were chirping. And she said, oh, I don't see any sin anywhere. In fact, she leapt up on her deathbed and started laughing and shocked all the people around who'd gathered to read her her last rites. So it's not that there isn't an alchemy can't happen, but you can't make the alchemy happen. It's just, it's when I've been reading Nisargadatta, Maharaj, and I just, I'm about maybe halfway done with it and finished the part where he talks about comparing pleasure and pain. And he said, uh, pain makes you go deeper. And I think that may be what he's meaning, is, is what you're saying, is that you, you, it requires more concentration, more looking at what's, uh, what's happening to you than pleasure. Maybe pleasure requires that you have more concentration. I don't know, but he was comparing the two and giving pain more of a plus. In the beginning, I think that's certainly true of a spiritual path, that um, we tend to become very mindful when we're in pain. These questions come up, the serious questions about life. When we're having a good time and you know, you're out surfing on Waikiki or something, spiritual uh, questions don't usually arise, these tough ones, you know. That's the time you say, oh, well, you know, God's in this heaven and all's well with the world. <laughs> so you don't really profit much from that. Oddly enough, though, when you can really learn to be mindful, then pleasure becomes interesting, and you see that actually pleasure is more difficult. 
just because pleasure is so seductive. But you can't just jump to and take a path of pleasure as your spiritual uh, practice. But it is true that pleasure is also something to be curious about and not get lost in. And you find all your reactions to pleasure, but you don't really know what pleasure is any more than you really know what pain is. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just trying to grasp this. I'm having a, a very hard time. And what I was just getting was that to fully experience the feelings without being overwhelmed by them is what we're talking about as an observer in some way. Without, yes. On the very well put. Without being overwhelmed by them and without being uh, driven by them. Because usually tremendously strong feelings push us off course. So we give up or we sail in a different direction. So this is why in all spiritual traditions, it's not that feeling and emotion and desire and so forth are uh, evil in and of themselves. The problem is we allow them to run our lives. We're the slaves to our impulses. And very often we're the slaves to very weak impulses. You know, you can start working on just things like you're a little hungry and you want a snack or this or that, you know. And if you start to watch your life, you see how that, you know, just little things, little things we're afraid of, we put off and we avoid and so forth. And little things that we, we desire, we go out of our way to get. And we start to see, if you could see your, the pattern of your life, over time projected on a map or something, you'd see that it doesn't have a, a direction of its own. It's, it has a direction that's just a response to these whims and fears and anxieties and so forth, you know. So this is why in our practice, the first precept is to take responsibility for your life. It's not that this isn't going to happen to you. You won't be blown off course, but you're going to keep that North Star in sight. You know what I mean? You get blown off course, you find the North Star again and start sailing that way. You get blown backwards. You find the North Star and keep sailing. Now you plot that life pattern on a chart, and it won't just be a random result of fears and so forth. Do you know what I mean? There'll still be fluctuations, but then there will be a direction. In it. The next step is you learn how to use this blowing off course. You see what I mean? Here comes this big hurricane. You know where you're going, and now the hurricane's blowing you off course, but you haven't really lost sight of where you're going, and you're going to now fully experience this hurricane. What is this hurricane? And it doesn't mean coming up with an answer right at the moment. This is the whole trick. It's suspending the answer. You're pursuing a question. The spiritual path is a quest. Quest has the same root as question. It is a questioning. If you already know the answer, there's no point in going on a spiritual path. Only people who don't know go on spiritual paths. Only dummies go on spiritual paths. Only humble, ignorant people go on spiritual paths. That's all who it's effective for. Another question kind of in a different direction. Did you feel completely? Um, I'm wondering, Red said in the beginning of your talk that this idea that we can make a better place on earth is should be given up. Um, how then would someone 
say someone was appalled by the treatment in the environment or something and they joined an environmental group, would that be a foolish thing for them to do? I didn't say a better place. I said a paradise on earth. Okay. Better is a relative term. You know, you can, I mean, in that sense, you can make things better for people. That's still not the point of it, really. The point of charity isn't really to make things better. It would be service, right? It's yeah. to express love. But certainly, you know, in relative terms, legitimate to think about making things a little better, you know? Could be just making your house more cheerful or, you know, going out and mowing the lawn is making things better in a certain sense. But better, it doesn't have the idea that you're going to somehow arrange the lawn so it'll be permanently cut, you know what I mean? That's just your way of interacting with the grass for a while at this time. But it's, it, it, you don't approach it with the idea, something's wrong with the world, grass shouldn't grow. So now I'm going to fix it, I'm going to cut it, and it's going to stay cut once and for all. The myth is that, uh, not that we can make things better, but that our whole function here in life is to uh, finally arrive at some state of absolute justice, absolute equality, absolute prosperity, you know, and then everything's going to be all nice. So well, we, we don't have the expectation that there's an absolute way things ought to be. We, we let go of the expectations and we just do our thing, whatever feels like it's right to do, we do. And you might discover that the absolute way things ought to be is exactly the way they are. And then you might discover what Julian of Norwich said. And the funny thing is, the way things are, you can't grab them. So you can't hold it up and say, this is the absolute way things should be, because the next moment they won't be that. Do you see? Mm -hmm. It's our attempt to, to grab. But if you let go of that, then maybe this is the perfect expression of God's love. I put this in terms of a question. Maybe it is. I'm not telling you it is. So you test me. Is it? What would that mean? One of the reasons for such radical teachings in the parts of mystics is to really get you to test them and not settle for uh, mediocre ideologies. One of our greatest mistakes is we read mystics and they say things like, Julian Norwich says, there is no sin any place. And we think, well, she must have been in some sort of ecstatic trance and she can't really have meant that must it must be poetic it must have seemed to her at that moment that there was no sin you know that's something we can relate to there have been some moments where everything seems lovely this is our own minds trying to take these teachings and reduce them to the level of what we know rather than let the teachings radically lead you and say wow does she really mean that then what's wrong with me I see suffering and evil all over the place. The very teachings that you understand the best are the lesser teachings. The ones that are incomprehensible to you are the greatest teachings. Well, if there are no other questions, why don't we break off the formal part of the morning?